Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open-source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the Internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Kyle Tobner. Kyle's the VP and Head of Security and IT at Copado. Kyle, thanks for joining the show. Happy to be here, thanks for having me. I'm excited for us to talk about this this enormous topic that impacts most major companies, yet at times can also sound like a very unsexy topic, and it's this idea of third-party risk management slash vendor risk management. So first of all, why don't you maybe just briefly introduce yourself and kind of some of your background, and then we'll get into a few questions I have about this. Sure. So like you mentioned, I'm currently head of security at a startup called Capato, kind of a pre-IPO DevOps startup. And prior to that, so I just joined Capato about three months ago. Prior to that, I spent 10 and a half years at Salesforce, where I owned their third-party vendor security program, as well as application security and some other things. Cool. So maybe let's start there, right? So running a third-party risk management program at a company as large as Salesforce, you know, with deployments and integrations all over the planet, what was the biggest challenge that you saw trying to deal with the, the complexity of a problem at that scale? It's always a balance between the amount of time you can invest to go deep on, you know, any given specific vendor versus scale. You know, you get hundreds of requests a month and you can only do so much with the resources that you have. So we were constantly trying to walk that line between going deep enough to really understand the impact a new vendor would have on the company versus keeping up with and not delaying the business objectives of the company. So how, how does one do that? I mean, you don't have to, of course, reveal any proprietary secrets from Salesforce, but you know, what are the principles of how you sort through that trade-off? First, I, I really like building processes, consistent, scalable processes that are effective and kind of support business partners. So I focused a lot on just mapping out the different stages and figuring out how we were going to manage the work within my team. So I would say, you know, if you're in a function like that, understanding that the, the volume will peak, the volume will spike, it'll drop off. And so you have to have some elasticity in order to move with the seasons. And so the way I did that is by building in third-party risk management or vendor security responsibilities into a broad number of staff who are also responsible for other things like application security. So that when we hit certain cycles, like the end of Q3, for example, the end of Q3 was always a nightmare because everyone had money. They wanted to spend it quickly. We get a huge spike in volume. And so basically everyone on the team would kind of drop what they're doing and dogpile into the vendor security process to make sure we could move all those requests efficiently. So that was one way. Yeah. So did you find that when you're, when you're approaching a problem like that, 
do you find that the different organizations that are interacting with that whole process, that they all have different needs and different demands, or I'm assuming that they do. And if that assumption is wrong, poke at it. But do you find that those different competing demands and priorities make it difficult for a process like that to run efficiently? Yes. Oftentimes, you know, they're under pressure for their line of business to deliver whatever it is that they've been asked to deliver by the company. And it's not their job to be experts on the security process. So they just may not know how to interact with the security team. It may be their first time. So oftentimes timelines clash, you know, maybe they come to the security team a week before they think they're going to, you know, resolve a purchase in 48 hours and realize it can take a little bit longer than that. And that's unfortunate because it's not a position that we want to be in. So I spend a lot of my time there trying to educate people on expectations of how the process could go and how we could partner better. Because being in the security team, you kind of end up in the position of being a blocker. And that's not the position I ever wanted to be in. I was there to support the business and help them achieve their objectives safely. Blocking them from doing something was not my goal. Yeah, you're, you're definitely hitting a hot button. I think that probably a lot of our listeners have, right? Where security is often seen as the ones who say no, when in fact we want to say yes, but, right? So how would you go about doing that? In large enterprises, often the communication, even within a given team or department can sometimes be complex, let alone across departments or even across business units. How can we foster that education that you're talking about? I mean, I think it, it definitely starts in security leadership. Oftentimes, leaders may be focused on the, the technical problem that they're responsible for and not necessarily looking outward to the business problems that their colleagues are trying to solve. I spent a lot of time meeting with the, the various business leaders, like you know the people who are in charge of HR, the people who are in charge of sales, the people who were running the various operations of the company to understand what were the problems they were trying to solve and what was the timeline they were working against to solve those problems. Because at the beginning of the year, if I got a good understanding, one thing that happened that we had like a benefits refresh, the, the benefits department is like, we're redoing all the benefits across the entire company this year. Knowing that at the beginning of the year, it was like, okay, this is a huge priority for the company. Anytime we see something from benefits, top of the pile, we're going to make sure that we're there to help them. And they became really good partners and knew how to work with security because we were proactively showing them that we were willing to support them and help them. And I think that partnership, when it came down to, hey, there, there's a security problem here, this company that you're looking at isn't as mature as we'd like, they were more than willing to work with us because they saw how willing we were to work with them every step of the way up until that point. Yeah, I love this idea you're getting at of establishing these relationships. And it's, it's a theme that does come up quite a bit here on this podcast about how you know, security and, and tech in general, you know, is so technical, so complicated, so scientific, and yet so often it boils down to building relationships and how do we use those relationships to further the mission of the business or whatever. So when you were building these relationships, it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm curious to hear how you think that one can build these relationships. Sounds like the things you were doing was being proactive, setting up time in advance, not being reactive, asking questions, being an active listener. Are those the basic principles for how you as a security leader were able to build relationships across enterprise? Yes, I would say that. And I always tried to focus on accessibility of the security team, me and the resources that work for me. 
I think a lot of the times I see security leaders who kind of focus on their process. Like I talked a lot about process building before. Sometimes people just focus on their process and get tunnel vision and say, you have to go through my process. If you're not, you're you're harming my ability to scale. So I won't talk to you. But that can be really frustrating for people who are confused by your process or new to it, or maybe don't understand it. So I tried to find a bunch of avenues where people could engage our team in, in scalable ways where maybe they were confused. Like some people just have a better time talking to someone than they do writing an email. So we had a thing we called office hours where we had an app. Anyone could hit that app, choose a time during the week for a 30 minute slot and sit down with someone from my team and just have a conversation about what their problem was and what they were trying to achieve. And that was a really effective way. Like a lot of people didn't use it, but for the people who needed in-person conversations, it was their favorite thing. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So you're, what you're identifying, it sounds like, is the, the logistical and practical reality that different people communicate in different ways and you were making yourself available in as many different ways as you could. Yes, exactly. And then we would have a Slack channel and a self-service knowledge base and kind of a ticketing system where if you were good at writing emails back and forth, that was great for you. And engaging in all of these different channels, while it pulls your focus a little bit and you know requires some resourcing to maintain, the it is much more approachable for our business partners and makes the process so much easier for them. I love it. You introduced a problem before that is one that I hear a lot. And it's this idea that, you know, the business wants to work with a particular third party and they want a contract like right now. <laughs> and the security process might take weeks instead of right now. So when one runs into that, how do we resolve that problem? I think having a process that communicates early time expectations is important because some of these things do just take time. So one of the one of the requirements that we had was for really sensitive vendors, you know, integrations to key systems, we had to do an in-house penetration test. And that takes time to coordinate, it takes time to perform, like it really can't just be done instantaneously. So we put a lot of effort into educating people on the timelines for that process so that the minute they talked to a sourcing partner and said, hey, we want to go and look at a solution. The first thing that sourcing partner said is like, okay, let's get this scheduled out because you know we know in this category, you're going to need a penetration test. Let's get that planned in advance. So there's that. I, I think sometimes though, like COVID is a great example. Because of COVID, we had to respond to emergencies. We needed testing vendors. We needed, you know, medical vendors for the pandemic that just there was no timeline in which we could move quickly enough. So having sort of like a risk exception process where executive in the business can say, I understand that I'm bypassing the process. I get it. The risk to the company is much higher if we don't bypass this process and accept the risk because he's doing something that will buy down risk for the company in a more significant way than going through the process. And then, you know, the process can always catch up later and, and close up that risk. But that outlet, that kind of emergency outlet and that flexibility from the security team is also important. Yeah, I like it. What's interesting is I would imagine that something like that probably winds up getting used a lot, right? And people want to, maybe they become acclimated or accustomed to this idea of there's always this emergency release valve. Have you found historically that that is in fact something that winds up getting, I'm going to say abused. I don't mean it in like a malicious way, like someone's intentionally, you know, circumventing the system, but at the pace of business, the way business runs today, everything is an emergency. So how do, how do we help the stakeholders who are involved in this type of decision distinguish between what's an emergency, like an actual emergency, and something that is more, you just want it right now? 
Yeah, I think, you know, there is this tendency to maybe like gamify the system. And if if the exception process is seamless and quick and faster than the more secure process, then everyone's going to go for that because their incentive is, hey, this one moves much faster. So you have to make the, the exception process weighty enough that it's not someone's first choice. The way I liked to do that was by requiring kind of a, an in-depth write-up of the risk scenario that we were going to make an exception for, and then having a VP level executive on the business side and a VP executive on the security side sit down together and discuss that write-up and the ramifications. And if it's someone more junior in the organization, like a director or a manager who's making the request for the exception, the knowledge that it's going to go up to their VP and their VP is the one assuming the risk and discussing it with someone from security, that helps them understand, oh, this is actually a pretty impactful decision. I don't want my VP necessarily to feel like he has to sign off on this because I didn't move quick enough. So that drives the right behavior. Wow. That there's, that's unbelievable hearing, hearing the way you're talking about that. Not unbelievable. It's, it's really cool is what I mean to say. It's um, really fascinating, the psychology in that structure, right? Which is to say that, hey, make someone else be responsible for this. And in so doing, make sure that person's going to be okay with that. And that I can justify why I need to have asked that of them. That's, that's so fascinating, the psychological aspect. How did you arrive at the power of that? I think it was trial and error in a way, but also just, I like to listen to a lot of podcasts about uh, behavioral economics and learning about incentives and how people respond to them. You kind of look at these systems and security and say like, okay, what kind of behavior am I incentivizing if I build a process this way? And you realize like a lot of processes and security are built in such a way that people just naturally want to bypass them. So you need to build them in a way that it is natural for them to want to go down the best path for you. Like you... If something is, if you build a process and you're like, this is the thing that I want everyone to follow, you have to find ways to improve it such that the majority of the company is going to want to follow that process versus any other option. Okay, that, that's cool. So let's explore that because we've just sort of talked about how do you build a process in a way that makes people not want to always trigger the exception always make everything an emergency. So that's sort of a disincentive. How do we, what's an example of a process that you've built, or even if it's a hypothetical one, how we could build a process so someone says, I want to do that. Yeah. So I I think I I can even drag it back to the the sort of the vendor security process. When I, when I zoom like back in time to earlier Salesforce days, when it was more of a startup than a big multi-billion dollar enterprise. But back then uh, when we had less, you know, like less formal processes in place, one of the ways that we got people to engage in our vendor security sort of program was saying, if you follow this process, we'll work with you. We'll figure out a way to de-risk this situation and sort of approve you to move forward as quickly as we can. If you don't follow this process, you own everything about this vendor going forward. So if they have a breach, we are not going to be there to help you because you, you bypassed our process. And that sort of that partnership incentive where they're like, oh, I, I don't want to be on my own if there's a problem. I want the security team's help. That was not my favorite way of building a process and, and building an incentive structure, but it worked really well in getting people to work with us. I love it. Yeah. Help, help them understand what's in it for them, right? Yeah, exactly. So we've been talking about this from the perspective of the um, within the enterprise itself, certainly getting the the vendors and the third parties to participate in these programs, you know, to whether it's answer the questionnaires or supply their security testing reports or meet with you, whatever it is, there's often a lot of resistance to that because it feels like more work. It's, it feels like a barrier to procurement, et cetera. 
how have you seen that we could build the process in ways that in, incentivize, just like you're saying, building incentives in, how do we make it so that we can incentivize the third party? That's a good one. You know, I've been on the the purchasing side for, for many years, and now I've spent a few months on the, the selling side. And so I've seen both sides of it. And I think on both sides of it, I've kind of come to the same philosophy, which is that transparency is the thing that I want to see more than anything else, because it is very difficult to judge the maturity of another company without information, without the details you need. And even when you have details, like it's not a science, it's an art. So you, you kind of want as many data points as you can get. So for me, when I was at Salesforce, the thing that I would always come at was transparency. When I was talking to a vendor, a prospective vendor, I would tell them, we're going to ask you for all these details. You may not want to supply them and that's okay but I want you to know that when you don't supply them, I'm immediately going to assume you don't have them and that will be counted against you. And it's kind of up to you how efficiently you want to pass this process. You know, If you think we're going to come to the conclusion that you're super mature without providing us all these details, great. You know, That's what we'll try. But if you don't provide us to them, like we have to kind of make this conclusion that you, know, you, you lack these kind of policies, you lack this kind of maturity, you know, you're not fixing your bugs quickly enough, that sort of thing. Versus like when we would work with a, a vendor who is super transparent, share everything, it was like the dream. You're just like, I love you. You're amazing. Let's partner together forever. I think there's some really good examples about out there of companies that have gotten much better at, at transparency. I mean, one of my favorites is GitLab. GitLab is super transparent about everything that they do. All their documentation is published publicly, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I love this theme you're keyed in on here about transparency. I wrote a book called Hackable, and it's it's all about it's written for people who build software systems, how to do it securely, but then ultimately the payoff is now how do you go prove that? to your customer. And I argue exactly what you said here, which is transparency. And when you're more transparent, it's, it's this really interesting dichotomy where the more transparent you are, even if you're saying, I have problems, I have, look at all these vulnerabilities and you know it's going to take us this long in our roadmap to fix them. That often builds more confidence in the relationship than the person who's like, no, 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 we, we're, we're good. Not applicable. We have military grade encryption, you know, that kind of stuff, right? 100%. Yeah. It, it sort of feels like this is maybe a little off topic, but like the bug bounty revolution where now every company is, not every company, but many companies are more willing to allow external reporting of vulnerabilities, acknowledging that like, yes, we're going to have problems. We need to build processes to recognize what those problems are and get them fixed very quickly. And that's, you know, when we were doing penetration tests against companies, that's what we were measuring against. It's not whether or not they had problems, but if we identified problems, could they fix them? And how would you be able to identify that, whether they could fix them or not? So we would do a penetration test of a, a, a given vendor and try to keep a really good technical staff of people who could do good penetration testing so that the, the odds of us finding bugs within a vendor were pretty decent. Not always, like the most mature ones, it was very difficult. But most of the time, we would find a few decent bugs in a, in a software vendor. And then we'd give them to them and say, here, here's what we found and ask them for what are your SLAs on fixing these type of bugs? And they would share them with, you know, we'll fix this one within 30 days. We'll fix this one within 60 days. Great. And then we would let them work against their SLA and sort of prove it to us. And you could immediately tell if a company was not good at fixing bugs against some kind of SLA because they would be like, well, we have a lot of priorities. This one's probably going to take us a year to fix. And that was always a very bad sign. Right. That's the nature of any business, right? We have a lot of priorities. And when you're saying it takes a year, you're saying it is not a top priority is essentially what's being communicated. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Now, the process itself of 
managing this, this whole from the vendor, having responses to security questionnaires, those questionnaires, whether it's actually a questionnaire or some other format, you know, information being communicated to an enterprise and within the enterprise communication from the security team to the procurement team, legal, business, whatever. Have you seen ways where that whole sort of life cycle of information works really, really well and cases where it doesn't work well? And I know you've given us some tips already on sort of both sides, but if you think about the whole process, I've sort of broken it up to this point into two sides, like inside the enterprise and outside the enterprise. But now if we think about it as a complete process, are there examples where people totally bungled it or examples where it's gone exceptionally well? I think so. I've spoken to a lot of companies who have vendor security teams. I like to keep in touch with a lot of them. And this is a pretty common problem across all of these companies, which is the information sharing across all these key departments. It can be a struggle, especially in one company, you may have a really strong vendor security team, someone who really gets the process and is super engaged, but another another participant in the process may not be as strong, may not have been as funded as well. And so that piece becomes kind of a, the detractor or the drag on the process. And sometimes it, you know, sometimes it's some companies, it's a security team that's a drag. So I kind of got the sense that wherever you go, there's always a gap here or there in the process and nobody has it hundred percent nailed amazingly well. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Agreed. So it seems to me like there's there's a handful of ways that people might solve that complex problem in terms of the tools that they use to communicate. On, on the more sophisticated end, there's actual platforms that are built to manage this process. And on the lesser sophisticated end, people are uh, using email and spreadsheets. Uh, in your experience, do you think that enterprises are largely in the use of tools, largely in the use of more sort of those non-solutions like using email and spreadsheets, or is it sort of somewhere in between? I would say that among the the security programs that I've talked to that focus on third parties, the ones that have a unified sourcing platform are always in the best shape. And that that what I mean by that is at some companies, you know, the the procurement, the purchase of software does there isn't a centralized function that manages and has oversight. It can kind of happen willy-nilly anywhere. And that makes it really, really hard for the security team or even the legal team or any team to be successful in that process because you're just fighting this visibility challenge. You're not seeing everything. And then when you get that centralized procurement function and hopefully some piece of software that brings together the purchasing process, the main thing you get is visibility. And it may not be the perfect solution from a security perspective or the perfect solution from a legal perspective, but the visibility is like the first key battle into you know really getting your hands around your third-party security. You just need to be able to see everything in order to properly gauge the risk of what's coming into your organization. I love it. Couldn't agree more. So what have I not asked you about that I should have asked about on this really crucial topic to many companies? I think there's a lot of cool innovation happening in this space. A lot of it in in other companies and smart people are doing it. I really liked Dropbox's program. They, They were doing a lot of really innovative things, especially their bug bounty for vendors. So they, they blogged about this in the past. In their bug bounty program, they have third parties included where they will pay researchers to research products that they don't own, that, that they just pay for because they've identified these products as being you know, impactful to the security of Dropbox. And I thought that was a really 
really interesting way to innovate in the third-party security space. Super cool. Awesome. Well, as our uh, our time comes to a close here, definitely want to appreciate all these insights. I've, I've learned a lot from you as we go through this, and it's great to hear some of the insights that you've shared. Uh, any parting wisdom that you wanted to drop on our audience before we close? I, I will just plug third-party security. I know for some people, it doesn't seem like the, the sexiest area to work in, in, in information security. But having done it for a number of years, I felt like it was the thing that prepared me the most for jumping into a sort of CISO head of security role because it taught me how to work with all these different business units across the company. It taught me how to really, you know, oversee all different aspects of security and understand how to gauge a company's security maturity. So if you have designs of becoming a, you know, a broader security leader in the future, spending some time in the third-party risk space can really up-level you. It's kind of like an MBA. Love it, the security MBA. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> That's a great insight. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for all the ideas and insight. You've been great. And thanks for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. For everybody else, you want to learn more about the show or request to appear yourself, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. CrowdSec, the collaborative and open source cybersecurity solution. Analyze behaviors, respond to attacks, and share signals across the community for free. Let's make the internet safer together. Learn more at CrowdSec.net. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.